Lord, that we, your people, by your spirits working through your word, would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, we pray. Lord, I do pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so so far, as we have been going through Romans chapter 8, we have seen that those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ have been freed from their bondage, freed from their slavery to sin. Better yet than having just been freed, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead dwelling within us. Believers, Paul has said, are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us. And now, in today's verses, Paul tells us more about the ministry of this Holy Spirit within us. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live the Christian life. In our own power, it is completely impossible to live the Christian life, to live a life that pleases God. But by the Spirit, Jesus Christ lives in us, who Colossians 1 says is our hope of glory. We have great hope because of the Spirit of God who lives in us. In verse 9 of Romans chapter 8, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And so although the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in glory right now, seated, we are told, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he also by his Spirit dwells within us, within his people. Verse 9 also refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God. And we, we see as Paul is presenting this picture of the Holy Spirit, even in the titles he chooses to use, that the third person of the triune Godhead brings the fullness of God to dwell within us. What an amazing thought that is. What, a, what an amazing concept that is. Well, it's only by the Spirit's enabling presence and the Spirit's enabling power that we can live the Christian life. The Spirit does many, many things in the life of the Christian. In this passage, Paul gives us three specific activities of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. The, the Spirit leads us. By the Spirit, God adopts us. And the Spirit gives us assurance that we are God's sons. John MacArthur says in his commentary, this is one of the richest and most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Using the figure of adoption, Paul explains the believer's intimate and permanent relationship to God as a beloved child. So how can we know that we have that relationship with God, intimate, personal, permanent, as one of his children? How can we know that we are saved from the wrath of God, as Paul has been telling us in Romans, that God does for those whom he saves? How can we have certainty that we will be in heaven when we die, that we will be with him how can we know that we belong to God, that we are his children? Well, Romans chapter 8 has much to tell us about assurance in our salvation. It's the Spirit of Christ we're going to see in this passage who gives to us that assurance. It's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who provides for us the proof of our sonship. And let's look at what Paul has to say to us about this in these verses. First, the Spirit of God leads the sons of God, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This word for, again, when we see this word in our Bible, for or therefore, that means we need to think about whatever was said beforehand. It's a continuation of the same thought. What has Paul been telling us in Romans chapter 8? 
He's been telling us things we need to do lately, as we saw last week. We need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We need to walk in obedience to God's command by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Verse 13, what comes right before this word for, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul follows that statement up with this word for. In verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So what does that mean? It means when Paul uses the expression led by the Spirit, he has something very specific in mind that relates to what he just said. He's not talking about a vague sense of the Spirit's directional leading. That's often what people talk about when they talk about being led by the Spirit. It's some sort of feeling about the Spirit is going to tell me where to go, what to do. I need to listen to the Spirit's voice that I hear somewhere inside of me. But when Paul says this here, it's in direct relationship to the thing he just said. That's why he starts with the word for. In, in this context, the primary focus on being led by the Spirit has everything to do with our sanctification. It has to do with, with holiness. We are being led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the spirit is leading you, Christian, towards holiness, towards righteousness. That is what God cares about. That, that is God's utmost concern. That's the big E, the top line on the eye chart of being led by the Holy Spirit is the spirit is leading you to put to death the deeds of the flesh and leading you to walk in holiness. And now when we get all the way down to those bottom lines that you can't see, now we get into where to go, what to do, what to say. That's how the Bible always talks about this. It's certainly how Paul explicitly talks about it here. It's those who obey the Spirit by obeying the commands of Scripture who are the ones who are being led by the Spirit. And, and Paul says all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. All of them. All believers. Every single believer are led by the Spirit. And all believers are the sons of God who walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Now, some translators, and we need to note this here in this passage, you may even see this in your, in your translation, depending on what you're reading from in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Some translators, in an attempt to have more inclusive language, uh, to be a little bit more politically correct, have changed the word sons to children. All who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Unfortunately, that is an unhelpful maneuver. Uh, when we tamper with the text like that, when we try to make God's Word easier to swallow, a little more palatable to our culture, we could lose out on some very important truths, and that happens here. Uh, even when we get to verse 15, the King James translation leaves out the words, as sons, that are in the next verse. But, but the Greek word that Paul uses here, huyoi, really means sons. It doesn't mean children. It means sons in particular. So what's the big deal? Why does it matter that, it, that, that we are sons of God and not just children of God? Well, because of what Paul's telling us here about our relationship to God. By the Spirit, the, the, the truth is, we might say it doesn't matter because the big, the big idea here is we're the children of God, and that is a big point that Paul's making. We're the children of God. It, it, that applies to both men and women. In fact, in verse 16, Paul really does use the word children. Could be 
male, could be female. You're the children of God. And so that's the, the big thing Paul wants us to understand. By the Spirit, we are made into the children of God. So if that's the case, why does it matter that we have the word sons here in verse 14? Why am I even talking about this if that's Paul's big point? Well, two reasons. One, most importantly, it's because this is the word of God and God gets to pick what words he uses, not us. So if God writes the words son, if God writes the word men, we don't change it to children. We don't change it to men and women. We value God's word more than that. That's the biggest reason. The second reason is because Paul's saying something incredible here that we don't want to miss out on. In the ancient culture of Paul's days, daughters didn't inherit anything. So you might have a certain privilege by being the child of a wealthy person, but you had a far greater privilege if you were the son of a wealthy person. Paul's telling us we are sons, we are legal heirs of God. So Paul says, by the Spirit, you are all sons. You are all legal heirs of God through faith. What an incredible statement that is, to be the sons of God. So, so ladies, even on Mother's Day, you shouldn't feel sad about being called sons. You should feel good about it. This is great news. This is wonderful news. Also, if it helps you, God uses this description for his church in Revelation 19, verse 7, in case you think this only goes one way. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So we should all be happy to be called the sons of God and we should all be just as happy to be called the bride of Christ, right? Equal opportunity for all of us. Praise God, praise God. Both images beautiful, both images mind-blowing. The word of God does not need fixing ever. It does not need us to come bring our modern sensitivities and go, I think we need to say it this way. God doesn't need us to remove stumbling blocks that he has put in place. He doesn't need us to make his word relevant. God says exactly what he intends to say, exactly the way he intends to say it. We need to let God speak as he chooses. So when Paul says that we are the sons of God, he is making a mind-blowing statement. He is revealing a glorious, glorious Truth, we are the legal heirs, the inheriting heirs of God, but it's only those who are led by the Spirit that are the sons of God. There's a lot of talk about the universal fatherhood of God in our world. Uh, I thought of a couple Christmas songs as I was working on this passage this week. Let there be peace on earth with God as our Father, brothers all are we. Not as great a Christmas hymn, Here Comes Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right. The only problem with that is that's not how the Bible ever talks about the fatherhood of God. The Bible never talks about the fatherhood of God in relation to just all of creation equally. Scripture does not teach that all men are the sons of God. Scripture teaches something quite the opposite from that, unredeemed men and women are not the children of God. They are children, Paul told us in Romans 1, of wrath. That's a very different thing. There's a, there's a, a wide range between those two things. Who are the sons of God? It's those who do not walk in the flesh, 
It's those who make war against their sin. It's those who are being led by, ruled by, controlled by the Spirit of God. Those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God unto holiness and obedience and righteous living. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. Steve Lawson says, like a shepherd, the Holy Spirit prods us forward in our sanctification. That's that's the major work that the Holy Spirit is doing in leading Christians. He's leading us in righteousness. Those who follow his leading are the sons of God. That's the first thing we see. First ministry of the Spirit we see in this passage, and of course the Spirit is doing a million other things, some of which are revealed in Scripture and many of which we a billion years from now still be surprised by the kindness of God to us and sending his Spirit to us. But of what Paul reveals here, this is the first thing. Second, the Spirit of God adopts us as the sons of God. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, it starts with the word for. We're, we're, We're following along in this thought that begins with, if you live by the deeds of the flesh, you'll die. If you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For, Paul says, it's the Spirit who leads the sons of God. And now Paul says, we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So the the first thing Paul tells us is what we did not receive by the indwelling Spirit of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Again, remember the context. Paul has talked to us about slavery, the kind of slavery we were under already at length in Romans. We were slaves to sin. We were mastered by it. We were dominated and controlled by it. As a result of our slavery to sin, we lived under the weight of our condemnation. That's why Paul says the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. It's this condemnation, this weight of condemnation that every person feels. That leads to such fear. It's why the unbelieving world is ruled by fear. They dread the crushing weight of their condemnation. They may be consciously aware of that. Most often, they are not consciously aware of their dread of condemnation. But the unbeliever's life is completely dominated by it. They fear death. They fear that their lives might be meaningless. They fear that it's all going to come to an end. They're filled with anxiety. They're filled with depression. They're filled with hopelessness. And so they try to mask it in all kinds of ways. When we leave for vacation tomorrow, we'll be going to a place where people try to mask their fears by creating these giant structures that make them feel like they just might die, even though they're totally safe, called roller coasters. It's just a way of making a, we're so afraid, we're so afraid of death that we want to do something in a really safe way that gives us that that feeling. There's all kinds of ways people mask it. They mask it with money, which gives them a false sense of security and a a, a sense of comfort and a sense of, of status. I've achieved something in my life. They mask it with sex. They mask it with all kinds of false joys. They mask it with power. All we have to do is look at the world around us and see how true it is that the world is dominated by its fear. What have the last 14 months shown us in this nation? Fear dominates 
the unbeliever. And Paul says that's the spirit you once had. That's where you were. You were dominated, a slave to sin, ruled by it, but you've been liberated. You've been freed from sin and fear. You've been given instead, Paul says, the spirit of adoption. What a beautiful, beautiful statement Paul makes here. Adoption. It's not, it's not a word that's used in the Old Testament. It appears five times in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul is the one who says it each of those five times. Three times it's here in the book of Romans. Adoption, the, the 1689 Confession of Faith says, Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby he places his name upon us. We're received into the number of salvation. We're given all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. So, so regeneration, when we're born again, when God makes us alive, we're dead in sin and God causes us to live, that secures our membership in God's kingdom, as we've, we've seen that previously in the book of Romans. But adoption secures our membership in God's family. Regeneration gives us a new life, gives us a new nature, a new heart, a new mind, a new will. Adoption gives us a new status, a new family, new rights. So when God regenerates and justifies a person, he also adopts them. There aren't two different ways of salvation. Boy, I got the regeneration part, I'm alive, but I haven't been adopted as a son of God. No, we don't, we, we, it's, it's a package deal. When God regenerates a person, when God justifies a person, he adopts them. And just as we were dead in our sins and needed to be made alive by God, we couldn't make ourselves live, just as we were condemned in our guilt and needed to be rescued, we couldn't get ourselves out from under our condemnation, so we are not by nature sons of God. We can only enter into God's family one way, through adoption. So like regeneration, like justification, adoption is a judicial act of God. In other words, he has to do it. We can't do it for ourselves. It's not something that we do for ourselves or to ourselves. It's something that God has to do to us, something that God has to do for us. He adopts us into his family. That's always how adoption works, right? If, you, if you've seen the musical Annie or watched the movie, it's not like the kids in the orphanage just said, we'll go out on the street, I'll pick parents, and I get to choose them. They're mine. No, adoption only works in one direction. And the significance of this, this picture that Paul's using of adoption would not have been lost on the Roman Christians. Adoption was a very important thing in the Roman culture of Paul's day. And adopted, often adoption didn't just happen with children. Sometimes it happened with young adults where a, a, a grown man would be adopted uh, by another man. But, but in that day, it was such a significant thing that in particular, an adopted child, but a, an adopted son in particular, sometimes had greater privilege within the family, sometimes had greater prestige than the natural children within a family. Often in the Roman culture, if you were adopting a son, it was because you were fairly disappointed in your own children. Now, we don't want to carry that imagery over here into this picture. <laughs> God keeps saving more because the ones he's got are bummers. No, that's not what we see in this picture Paul's using. 
But because that was the case with Roman adoption, significant thing. A, a young man or a boy was handpicked by a father to be the one to carry on the family name, to be the one to inherit the larger port part of the family's inheritance. Often an adopted child would inherit the major portion of the family's estate. They would be the main person, even if there were natural children, through whom the family line was passed down. F.F. Bruce said, He may well enjoy the father's affection more fully and represent the father's character more worthily than even the man's natural children. This was such a significant thing in the Roman culture, they had to have seven witnesses to witness the signing of the documents that would adopt a child into the family so that there could be no dispute about it whatsoever. It was that significant. In a Roman adoption, all the person's former ties to their previous life were cut off, whether this is a boy or whether this is a young man. The legal relationship with any other family, their, their former family or any other family, is cut off entirely. All their previous debts and obligations were covered as if they never existed. The boy was placed permanently, or the young man, into his new family with a new name and a new inheritance. Well, it's not hard to follow that kind of imagery that Paul's using here and trace it back through the things Paul's been telling us about what God has done through us in salvation, is it? It describes the things that God has done. What has God done for us in Christ? We've been specifically sought out and chosen by him, Paul has said. We've been broken free from our solidarity in Adam. Our, our, those old family ties, dead, cemented in, in, in death and judgment and sin and condemnation, broken entirely, completely removed from that. Our guilt and our condemnation totally erased as if it never existed. And we're now in Christ with a new family, a new name, a new inheritance. Oh, what a beautiful picture adoption is. Adoption is the highest privilege that the redeemed are given. It is our present possession, and it has great future implications. We're the sons of God right now. We're enjoying our adoption as sons right now, and we will enjoy it in even greater fullness when we see Christ face to face. J.I. Packer says, it's a great book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out, he makes, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This is the most significant thing that is true of us. God is father if we are in Christ. What, what, what better thing could we ask for than that? I can remember as a child being even in some pretty sketchy places as we grew up traveling in ministry, but just always having this basic feeling no matter where I was, naively I might add, dad's here. It's fine. In fact, we were once as a young child mugged in San Francisco right outside Candlestick Park to do that in the place where the San Francisco Giants play baseball is blasphemous. <laughs> but the shocking thing to me was like, oh, dad couldn't stop that from happening as a little kid. 
But still, I, growing up, oh, I'm safe here. Well, so that was misguided on, on some level. But man, the, God is our Father, the Almighty God, who made all this with just a word, who upholds all things by the power of his word. This God is our Father. This God sought me out specifically. Not some nameless, faceless group that he just gathered in and made it possible. No, he sought me out, as we sing in that great hymn. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. That's the God that's my father? What an astounding thing. And Paul says the spirit of adoption enables us to, to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word that indicates a loving, intimate relationship with God the Father. This is not a stoic word. It's the word that Hebrew children would call their father if they lived in a loving home. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says that the Spirit himself cries out, Abba, Father. So we cry out, Abba, Father, because that's what the Spirit cries out. The Spirit makes us aware of our Father. The Spirit brings us into a relationship with the Father where we trust Him, where we love Him. This is the initial part of this inheritance as the sons of God that we have already received. Christian, the fact that you want to run towards God instead of run away from Him means you've gotten the initial installment on your inheritance by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit who does that. We have a relationship with God that is close and intimate. This is the way in his earthly ministry that Jesus almost always prayed as we see it in Scripture. It's the way that he instructed us to pray. We see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That was a revolutionary concept when Jesus was telling his disciples, this is how you address the Almighty God, our Father in heaven. By, by the Spirit, we know that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father also. We belong to him. He loves us. This isn't just a positional declaration. Well, this is where you're at positionally because of what God has done. This is the personal experiential change in the life of the believer. We don't just have the status as sons, we have the heart of sons. The Spirit works this work in our hearts such that we cry out, Abba, Father. So the Spirit of God adopts us as God's children. Third then, the Spirit of God assures us that we are the sons of God. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit himself, Paul says. The Spirit himself, just to make it clear. By the way, your assurance doesn't come from anything other than this. Your assurance doesn't come because the right people are convinced that you're a Christian. The spirit, your assurance doesn't come because you show up in church regularly even when it's snowing in May. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit confirms, the spirit testifies to our sonship. What do we make of this? What's Paul saying? He's saying that the child of God knows that they belong to him. The child of God knows that they belong to God. This is a subjective, experiential awareness of adoption. 
Now, we need to kind of back up and be clear about something when we start talking about subjective, experiential things. Our assurance is rooted in the objective truth of the gospel. What God has declared to be true, that's where our ultimate assurance lies. God is holy. What does the gospel tell us? God is holy. I am a sinner. Jesus came to live and die in my place in order to pay for the sins of all who believe such that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are the objective truths of the gospel. That's where our assurance is rooted. God would not have needed to give us anything other than the objective truths of the gospel. Yet in his overwhelming kindness, he does so much more. He places within the believer his own spirit, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us, who gives to us subjective experiential knowledge of our adoption as sons. This is an amazing thing. R.C. Sproul says, the work of the Spirit is not only to make us children of God and, and then to take up dwelling place within our hearts, but also to give us an inner assurance of our standing with God. This is a work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian, to testify to our hearts that we belong to God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony within himself. The Holy Spirit brings to us this assurance. The, the Holy Spirit brings to us this overwhelming sense of the presence of God in our lives. He gives us a profound awareness of the holiness of God, the glory of God, of our need for him, of our reliance upon his grace. He grants to us a deep assurance of God's acceptance of us through Christ and that by his grace we have been brought into a relationship with him. Now again, we need to recognize self-deception is possible. This isn't our only grounds of assurance. It is one means by which God works assurance in his people. Self-deception is possible. There are many, many, many people who call themselves Christians and consider themselves Christians and are not. One easy way to spot them is if you point out where they are in blatant sin, they will say something to you like, only God can judge me. Oh, it's possible to be self-deceived. That's why Scripture tells us, this same Apostle Paul tells us, examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. How do we examine ourselves? Well, we talked about it last week. Paul says, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, and that statement directly follows the statement about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, walking in righteousness. We examine ourselves. Am I bearing fruit in keeping with salvation? Subjective experiences are just that. They're subjective. We don't interpret them with 100% infallibility. We, we might interpret the feelings we feel wrongly. We're not God. We don't always discern our own hearts perfectly. And so we need the objective standard of God's Word. God's Word, the, the, this objective standard of God's Word, which says, you do not have assurance of sonship if you are actively, unrepentantly participating in things that run contrary to God's word, to Scripture. You have no cause for assurance if that's how you're living your life. That's why Paul says everything that Paul says about living in the flesh and its consequences. The Bible doesn't intend to give unrepentant sinners assurance of salvation. 
It means to rattle them, to cause them to take a serious look at themselves, to examine themselves and see if they're in the faith. On the other hand, though, it's possible to be a true Christian who struggles with assurance. And can we have a moment of honesty together on this Mother's Day? We all do sometimes, don't we? Is it just your pastor who's alone and having that moment where he goes, am I even a Christian? Why am I still struggling with this? Why am I still thinking like this? Who, who wrestles with doubts? Some more than others find this a continual struggle. It's not just that, that thought that comes and then you preach the gospel to yourself and say, I am trusting and believing, Lord, help my unbelief. No, it's, it's a, a constant plaguing battle that maybe you are going through. Friend, that might be because of faulty theology. You've been taught a theology where it's not God who seeks and saves sinners. It's sinners who must figure it all out and come to God. It's, it's not that God is holding his people. As Jesus said, I hold them in my hand and no one can snatch them out. My father holds them in his hand and no one can snatch them out. No, it's me. I've got to hold on tight. And if I don't hold on tight enough, I might just lose it. Friends, you might have bad theology that is plaguing you. Also, you might just be an obsessive, quirky personality. <laughs> That's a distinct possibility. But some do struggle more than others with that thought. Genuine Christians who, who struggle with, with that thought. But the reality of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is something that Christians are expected to experience. We don't base all of our hope on it. It's subjective, but it is something that Christians experience. Why? Because of what Paul tells us. Because the Spirit himself testifies to the Christian that they're God's son. So, if the Spirit's testifying in me that I belong to God, that I'm his, he's mine, that I'll be his forever, then I should expect often to feel assurance of my salvation with momentary doubts peppered in because I'm a human living in a fallen world. So how do we get this assurance? How do, how do we get this assurance? I want to close by just zeroing in on, on this thought. How can we grow in our assurance of salvation in a way that is not presumptuous? In a way that's not, that's not growing in false assurance? First thing is this, live an obedient life. Live an obedient life. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will what? What did Paul say last week? Live. Live an obedient life if you want to have assurance. It is not the cause of our salvation. We must be clear about that or we preach a false gospel. But it is a sure effect of salvation that God's people will be led by the Spirit into righteousness and holiness. This Holy Spirit leads us in the Word of God. We are not free to live by the flesh. We must obey. We are commanded to Obey. All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. If you want to grow in your assurance, put sin to death. Live an obedient life. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that sermon. It'll feel like a good slap in the face, I'm sure. Somebody said to me on the way out last Sunday, you just don't, you want people to leave the church. Is that the situation? I really don't. 
But I don't want false converts to be comfortable sitting there in their false conversion. Second, passionately seek the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, this is Luke chapter 11, verse 9. I tell you, ask. Now, literally this word means keep asking. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then in verse 13, he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Seek the Holy Spirit of God. Next, train yourself to love the Word of God. Preach the gospel to yourself. Meditate on the promises of God. Trust this infallible truth over your feelings. Christian, if you are seeking to live a life of obedience, seeking to put sin to death, not as the grounds of your salvation, but as the outworking of your salvation, if you're seeking to live a life of faithfulness and you are wrestling with doubts, wrestling with a lack of assurance, then trust this word more than you trust your feelings. Your feelings are liars. They lie to you all the time about all kinds of things. And they will lie to you about this as well. The Spirit works through the Word of God. Seek to cultivate a love for the Word of God. There's only one way to do that. Many Christians in a church like ours have a better theology about the Word of God than an actual practice of love for the Word of God. We believe the right things about the Bible, but we don't believe them as fully as we think we do, or else... We wouldn't be so distant from our Bibles if we really believed the things we said. Cultivate a love for the Word of God so powerful in the life of the believer. Finally then, don't look to yourself. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to grow in your assurance of faith, look to Him, the author, the finisher of your faith. Robert Murray McShane told his congregation that they should take 10 looks at Christ for every look they take inside themselves. So when Paul says, examine yourselves and see if you're in the faith, we ought to do so. This is good counsel. Take 10 looks at Christ for every look you take at yourself. Look to the work of God in the cross of Christ. Trust in His righteousness, not your own. Trust in His all-sufficient sacrifice. Trust in His resurrection power. Submit yourself again to Him. Worship Him in humble surrender and believe His promise that He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Do this and you will grow in your assurance. And if you've been operating in a false assurance, then God will save you. And give to you true assurance, which I can assure you is much better. I said the word assure too many times in that statement. Praise the Lord for his kindness to us. To send his spirit to dwell in us. Oh, the riches. That's why Paul says, Paul meditates on these theological truths and then sometimes just explodes in in resounding praise in light of them. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, 
No mind conceived the great things that God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Praise the Lord for his salvation. Praise the Lord for his abounding grace and for the spirit of God that dwells within us. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, such encouragement from our brother Paul. Lord, to... to, to reveal to us the kindness of your plan in saving us and granting to us your spirit who, who testifies within us that we are your sons by faith. Lord, what an astounding truth. Don't let us grow complacent being used to hearing these things. Let us be again astounded at the glory of your adoption. Lord, of all days on Mother's Day, as we celebrate motherhood and mothers, and we think about what it means to be sons and daughters of, of mothers, Lord, we rejoice that you've adopted us as sons of God the Father Almighty through your Spirit because of the work of Christ. Lord, I do pray this morning for those whose, whose concept of family has been marred because of sin. Lord, family hasn't been such a good thing. Being a, a son or a daughter hasn't been such a good thing. I pray you would redeem that understanding with your word, by your spirit. Lord, for those of us who you have been so kind as to place us in loving families, and Lord, we thank you for that, but we pray, Lord, that our understanding too would be redeemed, that we would see that just as a smallest shadow, the smallest picture of the love of our Father for us, and the grace that you have shown us. Pray, Lord, for those who are here today that don't know you, especially those who have a false assurance, who've presumptuously just decided for you that you need to excuse the way they've been living their lives and their lack of submission. I pray, Lord, that in your mercy, you'd bring them to the end of themselves, even right now as they sit here this morning. Pray you'd spare them further suffering. By your spirit, Lord, call their name. Cause them to run to you in faith and repentance. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love for us and your power to save. In Jesus' name, amen.